is Fans Online, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. Ho, 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 ho! Welcome back to Fans on the Run! It's actually the Christmas episode! You'd think after a year of going at it hard and fast, that's what she said, oh god, I really don't know how to start these shows, do I? But there you go. And, uh, we actually made it to the end of 2020. Who'd have thunk? If you had said to some people in March that we would have made it to the end of the year, uh, they may be a little surprised. But you know what? We're a strong people, and you should be proud of yourself for getting through the year. Because it, it hasn't been easy for anyone. But I digress. The, these intros, uh, little, these intros tend to be a little rambly, so you know what to expect. But boy, do we have an episode for you today. This is someone who I've always wanted to talk to. And it's like the quote from the movie. Every time a bell rings, every time, every time a bell rings, a podcast meets some wings. See what I did there? That was a pun. I hate puns, but I made one. If, if you're listening to the show, I don't have to introduce who this is, but I will anyway, because I have a bit of fun doing these intros. Uh, oh god, I love being able to say this. He is a two-time Grammy Award-winning musician, songwriter, composer, and lute player? Or what, what, what is the word for someone who plays the lute? Is there a word for that? Lutenist. Lutenist. Yeah. Again, fans on the run, the show where you learn something. You know, it's weird because... It, for the lute, it's a lutenist, but for the flute, it's a flautist. So I guess, you know, loutist wouldn't be quite quite right somehow. Again, you learn something new every day. Um, his newest album, the fourth in a series of fantastic Beatle cover albums, and it's called The Fab Fourth, you can find it wherever good music can be heard these days. It, it's Lawrence Juber. Lawrence, welcome to the yeah, show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So it is, of course, um, we'll pretend it's Christmas because whenever this goes up, it is Christmas. So um, I want to ask... It's Christmas somewhere. It, that is probably incorrect, but it is also correct at the same time. 25%, one quarter of the entire music market is Christmas music. Well, I'll, I want to actually ask you something first because... Um, on the show, I it's usually kind of Beatles centric, but I I like talking about other things. I want to ask you, what is your favorite Christmas album, other than the one you're working on? Oh, um, of the ones I played on, my it, favorite is Crazy for Christmas, which was the Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. I was I was a hot lick for a day. You were a hot lick. Yeah, that's a fun album. Um, yeah, I mean, I've played on a lot of Christmas albums over the years, so um, I don't know. You kind of put me on the spot. It's all I'm always on the spot when people ask me to say what my favorite of anything is because it can change. Well, uh, I'll ask, what is that's, one that's of your favorites? That's a fun Christmas album. Yeah. Well, I recommend everyone out, el- everyone out there. Again, my my tongue is tied because I am very excited. Um, I encourage everyone else out um, there to go listen um, to this. Oh, you're, you are not the first person who has said that. You know, preparing for this, I, I did what I occasionally do sometimes when I'm really stressed. I put on a, one of my favorite albums to 
you know, relax to. It's this uh, cover album of Beatle Finger style guitar stuff. Uh, guitarist, I can't put my finger on the name of the guy. I think he was in, uh, I think he was a hot lick for a day. <laughs> yeah, I've done four of those albums. And they're all fantastic. Well, I'm glad you like them. It w wasn't what I intended to do at all. Um, I started off when I really got deeply into doing solo fingerstyle guitar. I started off as a composer, not as an arranger. And um, I had done a number of albums that were substantially original compositions. And my wife, Hope, said to me, um, you know, people keep asking you for an album of Beatles, and I know you don't want to do it, but please, you know, can you do it for me? So I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll do it, but you have to produce it. So she, you know, kind of took the responsibility for making it happen, and ha as she has done, you know, with the subsequent ones and other albums too. Um, but it was really, it was kind of her prompting that, that pushed me in that direction, which actually ended up being, you know, quite productive. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of great songwriting um, from whatever era it is. Mm -hmm. um, but the Beatles are so kind of transcendent of their particular era, um, but also just in general, I mean, there are, you know, some, some of the greatest songs ever written in the Beatle repertoire. So, and, and there's so many of them too, that it's kind of a natural, it just ended up being a natural thing because solo guitar and the way that I approach doing that stuff as a musician um, really uh, just, it kind of, it's, it's a nexus that, that seems to work. Well, you brought up a kind of composing and writing, and I want to ask you kind of my first proper question. Uh, aside from, you know, doing records, you've you've had a long, successful career doing uh, composing for TV and movies. However, you know, within the last decade or so, you've been working on uh, composing for video games, um, yeah. like StarCraft and Diablo. I want to ask... Yeah, mostly Diablo, because that was, that was a big project. Uh, Diablo 3 and and I got the gig because I knew the the head of music for Blizzard and they wanted a guitar player that could transition from the previous version of the game which was guitar driven um, but they wanted to go more orchestral with it too and I kind of can occupy that middle ground so um, that was how that came about and then within that you know, in, in terms of working for Blizzard, I did a lot of studio work for them playing on like World of Warcraft and stuff. But, well, but I noticed that looking I'm, at that, all the games you've done were all um, Blizzard some games. other ones that I couldn't even tell you what they're called. I mean, but um, but that was kind of a focused compositional thing. You know, I, I don't really have much, I don't really discriminate much between different modes of composing. You know, the, the act of composition is just, you know, you slant it towards whether it's for a picture or whether it's for a game or whether it's for the stage. It's all just finding, putting musical elements together in a way that's entertaining and dynamic and suits the context. Mm -hmm. So and you I don't really approach like it any that. differently than you would, say, a, a TV project or a, a film uh, project. I, uh, with video game, I mean, the video game work that I did, there was a much longer time frame. 
Whereas with television, it's like, okay, here's the picture. We're dubbing in 10 days and you have an hour's worth of orchestral music to write. And it's like, that's a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. um, you don't get much sleep under those circumstances. But, but you know, real, in, in reality, I mean, my, my focus has always been being a guitar player. And because I'm a musician who plays guitar, applying that musicianship to whatever the compositional task is has been just a very natural thing for me to do and nothing that I had the, originally had the ambition to do. I always wanted to be a studio musician. That was my goal. Well, you brought up uh, studio musicians and uh, you brought up the guitar, which uh, leads me to a question I kind of want to ask you. Uh, who are some of your uh, major early influences that made you want to be a guitar player? Well, I started playing. I got my first guitar almost exactly, what, 58 years ago for my 11th birthday. No, 57 years ago for my 11th birthday. And that was the week where Beatlemania really kind of crested in England, where everybody became aware of what Beatlemania was. Um, and I had been nagging my parents for a guitar for about a year, but didn't get anywhere. And then from, but I think that because the Beatles kind of all of a sudden made it very legit, <laughs> that, that they, you know, my dad wanted me to play the, the saxophone. So I had uh, volunteered to play clarinet in, in school um, and I put my name on the list to get a clarinet, but I made sure it was at the bottom. So they ran out long before they got to me. Um, and so the guitar was kind of like, that was my focus. I think it, it, it could have easily have been the piano if I'd started a few years earlier. But the guitar was so present. You know, there was a lot of twang on the radio. Oh, yeah. Days, you know, and, and most notably the shadows. I was going to mention if, you know, you picked up the guitar as a kid in the early to mid-60s, uh, the influence, you, even though we're talking about the Beatles, I think the main influence would be Hank Marvin of The Shadows. Yeah, Hank was, was an important sound because The Shadows would, had been having hit records for a few years. I think Apache was like 1959. And they, you know, they had a string of, of top 10 hits as well as backing Cliff Richard, who was kind of England's Elvis. Mm -hmm. Um at the time, and and so they were very present. You know, you couldn't you could turn on the TV and see them and see Hank Marvin with his red Stratocaster and stuff, and and it was that was very cool. But but 1963, there was a lot of music going on. That what you know became in America known as the British Invasion was really kind of um, you know marshalling its forces um, at that particular. Um, particular point in time. And so I, I was hearing a lot of English pop, not quite rock, because <laughs> rock hadn't really kind of identified itself as a, as a different genre. Um, it was all pop until about maybe 67. Um, yeah, 66, yeah. when the blues, you know, when the blues influence really started to, to take off. I mean, the Stones were bringing blues into it right from the get-go. But they were still, you know, with Brian Jones' influence, they were still making, uh, you know, what were essentially commercial pop records. Um, 
So that was kind of the sound. But I was also, uh, we had Radio Luxembourg, which was um, broadcast from, from Luxembourg and, uh, in Europe. And, and that wasn't bound by the, um, the playlist restrictions that the BBC had. The BBC had rules about what they called needle time, mm-hmm. in the days when you know, records were played on turntables with, with needles. And that's um, why they had to do a lot of, you know, live sessions. They, yeah, there was a lot of live sessions. And I played a lot of live sessions when I started getting into studio work. Um, it, it's Beatles. like you read my mind, you though. Those, you get all the Beatles stuff and Zeppelin and, you know, all the, the you know, I, some of the coolest stuff I heard on the radio was were BBC sessions. I mean, you know, I remember some of the early Cream stuff and... and um, you know the Beatles in particular because you could hear them on like a t- tune in on a Saturday morning and there's Beatles doing stuff that wasn't on the the albums. The first time I heard Johnny Be Good was the Beatles doing it on the BBC. Really? Yeah. Um, but but I think that the first important influence for me, um, you know, I took a few lessons, group lessons when I first started. But my dad took me over to see. Uh, a guitar player friend of his who showed me some chords and it was like you know I it showed me an F major 7 chord and it was like the most gorgeous thing I'd ever heard and then he showed me a C 13th and it was like you know wow there's this universe that the guitar can kind of exist in as well as all the the rock and the pop stuff and then there was also at the same time um, you know folk music was pop music in 63 because you you get the early you know you get early Dylan you got Joan Baez you've got Judy Collins you've got artists that are having hit re- Peter Paul and Mary having hit records with folk songs <laughs> and and so I was always even then I was intrigued by the self sufficiency of the folk singers the fact that Bob Dylan could get up there with just an acoustic guitar and a harmonica you know and it was like that always stuck with me um, and still does because you know part of the philosophy behind what I do as a guitar soloist is based on that notion of self-sufficiency the fact that I can make a complete musical statement with one guitar um, I, I read somewhere you can you can correct me if it's not true as it tends to happen on the internet um, one of your big early influences and it's a guitar player I really admire because I, I dig a lot of his stuff, Jeff Beck. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, that whole crew of English guitar players, you know, whether Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, um, Jimmy Page, and, of course, Jimi Hendrix, you know, came to London to launch, really launch his career. Um, the, and, you know, the, the psychologists say that what you listen to in your 15th year, especially right, right around 14 and a half, is like the key moment that that's the stuff that imprints on your brain, you know, which which takes you to you know basically like May June 1967. So you know what I was like thoroughly imprinted with was um, Sergeant Pepper, Are You Experienced, Pink Floyd, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, you know, and that whole year there was just an, an amazing amount of progressive rock music. But, you know, that was really the beginning of the very beginning of a kind of a prog rock sensibility. Well, I, I can't imagine a better year to have your big formative influences in than 67. Well, 66 could have been 
quite okay cool. well there's a contender there and maybe <laughs> yeah, 68 I mean, too that, that period when i was you know when i was 14 15 years old and you know i'd been playing a couple of years and i was getting into playing electric guitar and and blues you know especially like 66 you have the john mayall blues breakers album with eric clapton was oh, you know i wore that album out um you know, at 16 RPM, figuring out what Eric was playing. I mean, it was, you know, that was just what I did. But at the same time, I was also listening to Django Reinhardt. Or um, uh, I had been doing some gigs with a local band leader who was a trumpet player, and he gave me a, an album by um, two L.A. studio jazz players, uh, the Candoli brothers, that um, had... Howard Roberts on guitar. So I was hearing this very bluesy jazz guitar and, you know, another one slowing it down and trying to figure out what he was playing. And then I discovered like Barney Castle and, and Joe Pass and, and, but also on the other side of the spectrum, uh, Bert Yanch and John Remborn, you know, Pentangle were, were quite popular at that time. Fairport Convention, I used to see Fairport Convention about once a week. Um, when you know before they became kind of jigs and reels and they were still you know and richard thompson was was um doing 20 minute improvisations on a les paul goldtop and it was you know it was just very that was a big part of my inspiration um but also um you know at ragtime like stefan grossman i love that stuff and as i went on in my teens and i was playing classical guitar and also figuring out ragtime tunes, figuring out Scott Joplin tunes and stuff. It just kind of, on one hand, I, I'm, I'm on this career track to be a studio player, but I'm also, on the other hand, just obsessed with what you can do with a solo guitar. <laughs> you just want to figure out everything that you possibly can. Well, yeah, I mean, that, you know, especially when you have the time to do it. But, but I was also, I was studying music. I was studying music history, music theory, because I knew that I wanted to be a professional musician. And, you know, both of my parents left school at a very early age and didn't have the benefit of, you know, even a high school education. Um, so I felt that I owed it to them to get the best education I could get. But it had to be, for me, in the area of, of making music and understanding music. So I ended up going to London University. Um, I wasn't intending to originally. I'd actually, there was one place in England that you could study um, guitar in a way that would lead to studio work, and, which was in Leeds, which is you know a long way north of mm -hmm. London. And I got accepted uh, at the college there. Uh, but when I got my A-level results, I had actually done much better in music than my teachers ever imagined I would. And, and I decided that because I was already gigging and had spent my teenage years essentially paying my dues around London, um, it seemed a bit pointless to leave London right at the point where I was starting to kind of really you know, get a network going. Um, so I took a, a year off. I took a gap year, you know, which then later became kind of a, a common thing to do. But I was kind of a pioneer of the gap year. Um, and was busy gigging and playing in jazz bands and doing all kinds of stuff, you know, whatever, just all kinds of music making. And then I got accepted at London University and, and went there and studied for a, a music degree for three years. Because in England, you do, you essentially do one subject 
and you do it for three years and that's it, as <laughs> opposed to four years with more general education. You know, they, in England, they, at that time at least, they pretty much figured that they'd filled your brain up with enough general education by 16 that you could start to specialize after that. So um, it's um, a little different in the States. So. I want to ask, uh, when you were studying in London, what, what uh, pointed you towards the lute? Oh, just because it was a fretted instrument that you played finger style and because the guitar players like Bert Jansch and or John Remborn in particular who were playing transcriptions of, of lute music just really fascinated me. And I used to go to lute concerts. In fact, I went to a concert. The, the greatest lute player at that time, maybe still, is, it was a man named Paul Odette who could just, it, it's just an incredible, when you hear the lute played authentically, it's an incredible sound. And I just, I thought that that was really cool. And it was also kind of a hip thing to do, you know, when you're in college and, and you have professors who are like world's experts on early music, you know, playing the lute kind of gets you extra credit. Um, and um, I... And, and and it was not a long, a big step from classical guitar to playing lute at all. Uh, but I didn't really stick with it. I mean, I still once in a blue moon I'll do something on lute, but but it's it takes too long to tune it more than anything else. So, uh, it takes long enough to tune six strings without having to uh, to deal with nineteen or however many. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. I, I get frustrated enough having to tune the twelve string every now and well, again. Yeah. Twelve strings can be um, can be can be pretty tricky, but what can you do? It's changing strings on a twelve string, especially a Rickenbacker twelve string. Well, I, those Rickenbacker twelve strings. I'll pay somebody oh. to do that. I'll pay my tech to do that because that's the hardest guitar to change strings on. Well, because they've they've got the weird headstock with the slots and the tuners all facing different directions. But it's also because the way the string attaches underneath the tailpiece, you have to keep the tension on, otherwise it falls out. So you, you've got the tension on, you're trying to poke it through, you know, one, one or other of these uh, machine head, you know, uh, things. And, and it, uh, yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. I won't do it. I, you know, I, there I, are things I, I just draw the line at and changing, changing the strings on a Rickenbacker 12 is one of them. Well, I, I find myself, as I'm talking to more and more musicians, uh, I've always had this dream of owning a Rickenbacker. And I find myself being pushed further and further away from that dream. <laughs> Well, it's only the twelve string that's really the issue with that because of the way that they they configured it. But you know, Rickenbackers are cool guitars. They are not particularly their pickups aren't particularly powerful. No. Um, you know, so they don't they're not terribly versatile. But if you want to do the John Lennon rhythm thing, yeah. you know, or you know, or the or the George or you know Rickenbacker twelve string, you know, Roger McGuinn, that that kind of sound. Um, but also, uh, at least, you know, I have a 65 uh, 12, Rickenbacker 12 string, and the neck is really quite narrow. In fact, I think George Harrison commented on it you know, later in his life that he just couldn't figure out how he, he ever managed to play it when he was, you know, in the Beatles because it's just the strings are really close together. Uh, I, I played a similar model, and I was surprised at how narrow the neck was. Because I know they're making some nowadays that have uh, wider necks, right? Where you can actually, you know, play chords and not have to look <laughs> at your hand like, "What the hell am I doing?" Yeah. 
Well, you want to think about this in terms of Beatle guitars. The, the Hofner bass has no dots on the side. They don't. And you watch Paul in concert, and before every tune, he tilts his bass so that he can see the fingerboard and then locates where he's going to start. And then he doesn't look at it because he knows where he is. But, but there's no, you know, you don't get, it's like on a classical guitar, you don't get that, that extra little guide. Now I'm embarrassed. I've owned a Hofner bass for about eight years, and I haven't noticed that yet. <laughs> well, maybe maybe some of them do have the dots, but the but the original ones didn't. Again, Paul still plays his old one. So you're teaching me all these new things. It's this is becoming really informative. Um, so you've mentioned that you kind of knew from quite early on that you wanted to work as a session musician, right? Um, I want to ask you about your first session and if do you have any memories about, you know, going into the studio for the first time as a session guy? Um, I don't really remember the specifics of my very first session because there were a number of sessions that just kind of blended into each other. <laughs> um, it, I think that the, what I do distinctly remember when it really kind of got up to uh, a, a higher level was one of the, I think the first album project that I worked on was, was for Cleo Lane, who, was, uh, who is a, an English jazz singer, married to John Dankworth, who was a great alto sax player. In fact, I had done some work with him when I was in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra because he was a, a big band arranger and we used to play some of his arrangements. Um, but, um, I got called in to work on this album, and the producer was George Martin. So, you know, almost immediately getting into that level of studio work, I'm working with George Martin. So, and I was pretty green at yeah. that time. I mean, you know, it was like I remember we were doing something in the key of B, and I felt that it was like, you know, it, you, you didn't use a capo because it was not manly, you know, in some kind of fashion and, and and but you know B major is a bit of a struggle I mean over the years I've kind of learned how to tame it but at that point it was like you know there's some pretty hefty bar chords and you know I, and, and but I learned a lot from the way George Martin kind of worked you know coaxed me through it that a producer you know a good producer really knew how to get the best out of a musician and so that was that was a valuable lesson and a, and a memorable a memorable session. Um, beyond that, I mean, there were there were so many. I, I remember it was once I played on a demo, and I, I don't even have any idea who it was for. But I remember Mickey Waller was the drummer who had played with Rod Stewart, I think. Um, and I, you know, I was baffled when he showed up. And I was used to drummers kind of showing up with drums in cases, and yeah. and his drums were just loose. And 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 the producer was. Um, a man named Andy Bowne, who was, I think, a bass player. And I think he played with a band called The Herd. Oh, the, that was Peter Frampton's band, wasn't it? Right. And I think he was a bass player in The Herd. Um, I can look it up, but I won't right now. Yeah. Um, but I remember he was the one who showed me how to play chips, where you do like, you know, like you do an upstroke on just the top three notes. And that's kind of, that goes with the snare drum on a lot, especially, you know, 50s style stuff. Yeah. You know, chip. That, 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 yeah. And he was the one who showed me how to do that. 
Um, you know, so there's little kind of snippets of things, but, but I got busy fairly quickly with all of this. So it was not, you know, it, everything kind of you know, blends together. I mean, I covered some of this in my, I, I did a book, Child <laughs> with Wings, uh, some years ago where um, I talked about the back to the egg sessions with wings and illustrated with the photos that I took. But I also, I also, um, you know, predicated it with my story and how I got into Wings and being a studio musician and all that kind of stuff. So um, there's, you know, there's some things in there. I'd have to reread it to remember what I've forgotten since I wrote it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to be quite obvious here. If any of you out there do not have his book, go find it. You are doing yourself a disservice. You can get it through my website. I have an online store. That way you get it signed. If you buy it from Amazon, it's, it's more expensive and you don't get a signature. So Even better. I mean, who yeah. doesn't want a Lawrence Juber signature? Well, there you go. Um, so within a couple of years of you know your first session, you uh, wound up on the soundtrack doing the uh, uh, James Bond theme on The Spy yeah. Loved Me. Mm-hmm. So was that a little nerve-wracking? Um. Actually, you know, the, when you're in a studio with musicians that you work with on a regular basis, I, for me, it's not typically nerve-wracking, you know, because the goal is to, is you're, you're there as a professional. <laughs> so there's some, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a kind of a flutter that comes from working with somebody that, you know, is a name artist or, you know, in that case, it was Ma Marvin Hamlish was the composer on that, and he was, you know, somewhat legendary. Mm -hmm. um, and at one point, we would, I, I showed up for a session that was just me, uh, the very beginning of the movie that you just hear the, the Bond theme, the, the guitar lick um, on a solo guitar. And I showed up at the session, and he, and Marvin Hamley said, oh, you know, I'm hungry, let's, uh, I, I need to get a snack before we do the session, come with me. So I went with him to a restaurant and we're sitting there talking and his snack was like a full steak dinner. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. Um, and then, you know, just being in, you know, especially uh, that was at CTS Studios in Wembley in the big room, which is a very big control room. <laughs> and you're watching the picture on a movie screen, you know, uh, on a big sound stage. It's kind of, there's something imposing there's a lot of gravitas to that and movie sessions in general have a certain kind of gravitas mostly because there's a lot of money being spent there are time constraints and you know one could be at warner brothers for example where it's a huge studio and and the guitar typically is in like an isolation booth in the corner and, and another guitar way over the other side and you can't talk to each other unless you have headphones on you can't hear what's going on without the headphones and there's a lot of pressure that can be nerve-wracking because just you know the, the the kind of pressure on on getting it right not making a mistake reading the part correctly and you know not having a lot of time to to look it over and you know you don't you can't really afford to make mistakes in the early days when i first started doing movie stuff in la um or and tv stuff in particular they were still working on film they weren't working on videotape. Mm -hmm. So there's a guy in a machine room racking up the film so that the, con the conductor can see the picture yeah. you know, to, to match the cues. And if anybody makes a mistake, the film has to be re-racked. 
the multi-track recorder has to be rewound and now it's just you know you hit you hit a button on pro tools or you know and it's all it's all digital and integrated but in those days you know the technology was still i mean it was effective and it sounded great yeah. but it was also quite clunky well i can only imagine that kind of would have added to if you had any nerves having having to play exactly in time with the the film as it's going along well that's really the conductor's job i mean you get a click you know in the headphones you typically get a click okay and so you're playing with the click, but the conductor, you know, there may be places where you may be doing something without a click, and then you're really following the conductor. And the conductor has to make sure that, the, you know, the cutoffs are in the right place and, and the, the dynamics are right. You know, you can see a part, but you've got to make sure that you're not playing pianissimo when you're supposed to be playing fortissimo or whatever. You know, it's just, there's a lot of information to process. And... You know, it's a very, very focused kind of thing, and it's uh, it's not easy, um, and the rewards can be quite good, um, but it, but it is a lot of pressure, and it's also very competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, I, when I got to LA in 1981, it was already really too late to catch the kind of the post-wrecking crew wave. Yeah. Um, but I found my niche and ended up playing on you know a lot of tv shows and a lot of movie stuff not so much movies more records and tv but but you know some movies like pocahontas and goodwill hunting and you know and that was kind of cool being in the studio with danny elfman i and, can uh, wow and i did a few things i did men in black 2 with him and i a couple of other movies and um this will probably be uh, before we kind of move on to another thing, I want to ask you about another session thing you did, and it was only last year or a year or two ago. You you played on a cut on the new Harry Styles album. <laughs> well, that's that's because of my daughter Elsie. Well, she co-wrote the song. Yeah, Elsie co-wrote the song, and she you know that's what she does. She's a songwriter. In fact, she co-wrote um, Miley's latest Midnight Sky, which just got mashed up with Stevie Nicks. Um, and that's actually a very cool, uh, very cool record. Um, and, you know, she's worked with Mark Ronson. She's worked with, um, um, are you familiar with Leaky Lee? Yes. Yeah, she co-wrote most of Leaky Lee's last album. Um, wow. And has been working with all kinds of interesting people over the years. But I just, you know, she called me up one day and said, what are you doing this afternoon? I said, oh, I, you know, I'm, what do you need? And I said, well, they could use some guitar on this track. So I you know, went over to um, where it was, East West, which is what used to be um, in Hollywood, what used to be um, part of the United Western studio complex. So a lot of amazing records were recorded in that studio, including Pet Sounds. Really? Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, and I worked with um, Jeff Basker, who was producing and who co-wrote with... Harry Styles and LC and and they wanted you know kind of this kind of cool guitar part that I obliged them with. <laughs> you know I know Harry Styles is a big Wings fan and a big fan of Back to the Egg in particular, but I think it was really kind of just purely coincidental that it also happened to be my daughter that wrote the tune. You know, so yeah. Well, you mentioned Wings. Um, I think I should probably ask you that you know okay. um so how did you first meet 
uh, than former Beatle and future wing or a uh, future Visa spokesperson Paul McCartney. Um, what was that last bit? <laughs> uh, former Beatle and future Visa spokesperson. Oh, he's a Visa spokesperson, is he? Yeah. <laughs> well, he All did right. stuff. I thought it was uh, funny. The um, the first time I met him was very very inauspicious. Uh, I was doing a session. Um, also at CTS Studios where we had done the James Bond thing. And um, I think it was a jingle, advertising jingle or something. And I was working with, um, the, uh, with uh, Herbie Flowers, <laughs> who's a great English studio bass player. And the drummer was Tony Newman. And actually the two of them played on a lot of the T-Rex stuff. Um, but Herbie is really um, kind of one of the great, great English studio players and and we were on our musicians union break and went to the uh the the, re the restroom and there's paul mccartney zipping up his fly so um not the most auspicious way to meet a beetle um but but you know Her herbie introduced me and that that was it i mean it was very brief that paul was there they were wings were working on um mixing the stuff for the wings over america project so this um, would have been 76? For the movie. So that, this would have been sometime in 1977. Okay. Um, but then in August of 77, I was at a, a transcendental meditation retreat with Mike McCartney, Paul's okay. brother. Mike McGear. Mike McGear from The Scaffold. And one morning in August, he walks in brandishing a newspaper declaring that Elvis had died. So I learned that, that Elvis had died from Paul McCartney's brother, which was kind of an interesting thing. Um, but things were kind of like I was getting encircled by this because shortly thereafter I was working, playing lead guitar on a, a TV show with David Essex, who was a big pop star at the time. <laughs> and um, Denny Lane was a guest and we did Go Now and Denny liked my playing and uh, eventually recommended me to Paul. Um, and a few months after that, I had run into them um, at Air Studios in London, which is another one of those great yeah. studios that doesn't exist anymore. But that was uh, that was George Martin's studio. It was George Martin's, yeah, because Air was the um, association of, of independent uh, record producers. Yeah. Um, and um, we, um, I was early for a session, and they were in the in the room running late, so they invited me in. And Denny had, you know, kind of, Denny and I bonded a little bit more. And I got introduced to Paul and Linda. And, and I knew they were looking for somebody, but I was, you know, I didn't imagine that I would be kind of on the list. Um, but Denny recommended me. And, oh, some months later, I mean, it wasn't until April of 78 that I was working at Abbey Road in Studio 2. Never heard of it. No. Well, it's, it's just a street in northwest London. Yeah. Um, but I was in Studio 2, and, and you know, there's that staircase that goes up to the control room, and you didn't go up there. If you were you know, a studio player, typically you didn't go up there. Um, and I had done many sessions there, um, including the Alan Parsons Project, and I didn't know it was the Alan Parsons Project because I didn't get up to the control room to see who was you know, running the board. Um, you know, typically under those circumstances, I was kind of, my relationship was with the arranger or the conductor or whoever. Um, 
And um, there was a phone call for me at, at Abbey Road, and, and this would have been, this was April, yeah, April of, uh, of 78. And um, the, it was from McCartney's office saying, Denny wants to know if you can come and jam on Monday, and oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. So immediately it became apparent that this was actually a Wings audition. Um, so I called up my brother and borrowed some LPs because I didn't have any Wings <laughs> stuff. And I was familiar with the radio hits, but I didn't really know the album stuff. Uh, but then I realized that there was just no way I was going to be able to anticipate what we were going to do. And as it turned out, me and Steve Holly were both auditioning, and we played you know, a bunch of reggae grooves and some Chuck Berry tunes and got off at the gig. So um, I think we both fit the suit. You know? Well, and the rest is history. Yeah, ancient history at this point. Right? Oh, it's not ancient. You know, kids like me are still talking about it. I suppose so, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about the album you played on, Back to the Egg. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you've been asked, you know, infinite questions about that album. I want to ask about twice, yeah. one song in particular, which is my favorite cut on the album, uh, Spin It On. Uh-huh. Uh, do you have any memories from that session? <laughs> Oh, yeah, very much. Um, you know, it's funny because we, the first session that Wings did was not for Back to the Egg. Mm -hmm. we, we did a demo of a song called Same Time Next Year. Okay. And it was a big ballad, you know, like a My Love type ballad. And, yeah. you know, after we did the tracking session, they put like a 60-piece string orchestra on it. And it was, you know, it was the most produced demo I'd ever worked on. Um, but then... We went up to Scotland and spent some time jamming, and then um, we went back up to Scotland to start recording. And the first tune we did was To You, which is pretty out there. Yeah. And then the second tune we did was Spin It On, you know, which is this punk rockabilly yeah. kind of, which, and both of those tunes are like a, a million miles away from a big My Love type romantic ballad. Um, so it was like, okay, there's, you know, this is going to be an unpredictable gig. Um, and after we had cut the track, Paul said, okay, I, you know, these are the spots I want a guitar solo. So I sat in the control room right next to him and just, you know, eyeball to eyeball, just played licks, you know, in these spots. And, and he kind of directed me a little bit, but it was really kind of a synergy to get what was appropriate to the track, um, you know, in a very short time. I mean, it wasn't like we spent all night doing it. It just kind of flowed. And that was a lesson f in terms of what he could bring out of me that I wouldn't necessarily have predicted that you could get out of me. So um, it, was, it was a productive, it was certainly a productive session. Well, I want to actually ask, what what guitar were you playing that session? What was your act of choice? That was a 63 Strat with, I think I had Mighty Might pickups on it. Really? Because the original pickups had, had were not in great shape mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason. And um, that was that era when everybody was really getting into replacement pickups. So Seymour Duncan was winding pickups and... and um, the 
and there was Mighty Might, and there was Damasio, and for some reason, I think Demi Mighty Might might have even been the first ones, but in any case, for some reason, I had the, those pickups on that guitar, and I think the amp that I was using was a Mesa Boogie um, Mark One, I, I think, for that one. I mean, um, I'm, I'm just a sucker for the, the golden era of, you know, slabboard strats. Yeah, um... That actually, I ended up that guitar ended up getting refinished, and then I traded it for the Rickenbacker 12 string, which probably in the long run wasn't the best deal financially. Um, but it wasn't my favorite. You know, the 65 strats are the ones with the wider fingerboards, mm -hmm. and actually, the strat that I most use now I have a 57, oh. which is it's in the um, Wonderful Christmas Time video. Um, I am so jealous of you right now. What's that? I am so jealous of you right now. You have a 57 Strat. I have a 57. Um, it has that beautiful have, boat neck, the V. Yeah, exactly, the boat neck. But I have a Schecter, a 1980 Schecter, which was some kind of you know original Schecter, uh, when they were being made in Van Nuys near here. Um, and that is a... It's an Imbuya body with a Palferro neck. And it's an amazing guitar. It's heavy, but it's amazing. And I use that for a lot of studio work along with the 57. I use both of those in the 80s for a lot of stuff, 80s and 90s. Um, and then that just kind of sat in a corner uh, collecting dust for a while. And earlier this year, I put in some pickups and wired it and changed the hardware out and it's now my kind of number one guitar and it, it plays just like that you know like a 63 it's got that it has that vibe that kind of vibe to it and it's a killer sounding instrument um so yeah i mean you know i was at that time especially i was really kind of looking for for the the perfect guitar sound which of course is you know essentially unattainable <laughs> but um that was the period, you know, I got, during the Back to the Egg sessions, um, I got the, I got a 335, which is the one in the Good Night Tonight video that's on some of the, um, some of the tracks on um, uh, Back to the Egg. But I also had an, an early 70s, was it early? No, it must have been later than that. It must have been about 74 Strat that was actually quite useful. And that's the one that I used on um, again and again and again. Mm -hmm. um, but I also had a, like a Les Paul custom and, you know, a, a bunch of guitars. Well, and the first time I went to New York, I went to Manny's and bought more and then took them back to England and sold them and bought more. You know, it's just like, because they were cheaper in New York than they were in London, so I could make, make some money. Oh, don't even get me started. Even now, guitars are so much cheaper. Not even... Uh, in New York, just in the States in general. I, I live in Canada, and so right. I, I've, I will admit, I have gone down a few times, uh, picked up a guitar down there, and just kind of maybe driven across, back across the border, maybe didn't say what I had. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. But, you know, crossing that border with a guitar, I mean, I, my experience is always, you know, going into Canada it's always, okay, you know, work permit. Well, I don't need a work permit. We'll go stand in line over there anyway, you know, and then they'll say, well, you know, an hour later, but you don't need a work permit. And then going through customs with merchandise and, like, you can only bring in so much and, you know, 
there's all kinds of restrictions there. But my favorite one was is I, I had a gig somewhere. It was right like across the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forget where it was, but it, there are the two um, customs um, uh, posts that are in New York State that are like, you know, there's the one kind of on the east side and there's the one on the west side. Yeah. And I went up on the east side and came back on the, the west side because I, for some reason I was going to Nazareth to meet up with a friend of mine from Martin Guitars. And um, coming back at 6 o'clock in the morning, there's this one guy in the, um, in the, the customs house and, and I'm there with my car and my guitar's sitting on the back seat and he's looking at my passport and he's looking at my guitar, and I'm starting to think, uh-oh, now I'm going to have to, you know, explain. And then he, then he says, so you're going to be playing with Paul in Ottawa. Turned out he was like a Wings fan. Oh. <laughs> no, that's happened a few times. So, you know, phew. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but I mean, I've always had issues just in general with um, with authority figures at airports that really dates back to, you know, January of 1980. Well, Paul got, you know. well I, I was going to ask a question about that because I, I was reading uh, this Philip Norman book about Paul and he said, um, you were on the same plane. Yeah, I was standing next to him. Yeah. Um, and you got pulled into different questioning areas and the uh, Japanese authorities were interested in your less Paul thinking you right. were going to smuggle pot in through... Yeah, I, I just bought a Les Paul, a 57 Gold Top on 48th Street back in the day when there were guitar stores on 48th Street because it's just there's nothing like it was now. Then, um, now it's all changed. Yeah. No more manners or any of that. Um, but, um, so I was hand-carrying it. All, all the rest of the gear had been, you know, shipped, but I was hand-carrying this guitar and... and Paul got taken off to a separate room and I and Linda and the kids were waiting in another area and then they took me into a room and pointed to the guitar and and handed a screwdriver, handed me a screwdriver and I had to unscrew the plastic panels on the back and the truss rod cover just to show that there was nothing stashed in there. You couldn't stash much pot in a Les Paul truss rod. you you, You know, it's like they're just... They're just doing their their job, you know. Yeah. And that, that didn't bother me because, you know, my pockets had been vacuumed and, you know, everything was... Yeah. I, I was as clean as a whistle. Well, you, you got off a bit easier than, uh, yeah, than Paul. Just a bit. Yeah. My, my friend isn't as, you know, versed in the world of Wings and Paul McCartney, but when I told him who I'd be talking to and I said he was a member of Wings from 78 to you know, the end of wings. Um, he said, Oh, you have, you, you got to ask him, please for me, Ethan, ask him about that day. Um, so how did the rest of your day go it that day in January? Um, we, I went to the hotel with Linda and the kids and wherever you looked, there were posters for the wings tour. Um, and we were kind of hopeful that it would blow over one way or another. Um, we got to the hotel, got checked in. It was on the news, and it was not looking good. 
Um, so, you know, then it was basically, okay, you know, eat some sushi, you know, be in Tokyo, but not know what's going to happen next. And then the next morning, um, all the posters had gone. There was like no sign of it. And, See, just um, hearing that, it's if someone had grabbed one of those posters, it'd probably be worth a fortune now. Well, you know, the um, none of the fans sent their tickets back for a refund. Really? They all kept their tickets. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to have to check eBay after this. <laughs> for a ticket that... I do have the tour jacket. You have the tour jacket. I have the Japanese tour jacket. Yeah. Well... One of my, I, as you know, I'm a record collector and I, I, I really like bootlegs and there's a particular bootleg. Oh, my, oh. my vinyl. Over there. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to feel like we're kindred spirits. Um, <laughs> there's a bootleg called, I think it's Wings Live in Japan with. Which of course it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but it was the tour book cover and on the back right. it was Paul in handcuffs and it was a different live gig altogether. But it's. I'll, I have to admit, it's one of the funniest bootleg covers I had seen. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got somewhere. I've got a, a whole booklet of all the um, all the press clippings and everything from that from from that that particular misadventure. Yeah. But you know what's amazing? I mean, Paul's in jail for ten days. He goes back to England within the week. He's back in the studio. Really? Yeah, he's back in the studio mixing the. Uh, the live set from the second Glasgow concert that is bootlegged as uh, Last Flight. Mm -hmm. um, well, because there was also, there was need for a single and um, the, I think the plan, you know, what became the plan was to put out Coming Up as as the first single from McCartney 2 with the live version on the, the B-side. Mm -hmm. And that kind of backfired. <laughs> Because, you know, he did this wonderful video where he's, you know, playing all these different roles. And then they debuted it on Saturday Night Live. And radio stations were not going on it until the DJs flipped over the disc and said, wait a minute, that's the Paul McCartney that we uh, want to play. And it went to number one. Yeah, the live version with you guys. Yep. Which is, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it, it's, it's better. It's different. And more representative of where the band was going in terms of being a rock band with this, you know, with this kind of dance groove. I mean, it's funny, the last two Wings hits were both essentially dance records, you know, Good Night Tonight and, and Coming Up. Um, but, you know, Paul had made this detour into this kind of proto-electronica that the McCartney 2 album represents, and then started heading in this pop direction. But meanwhile, he had a rock band. Yeah. And, you know, so we started working on the tug of war material, but we were doing it in a rehearsal room and we really couldn't get into the granular detail of it without being in the studio. But when George Martin got involved and the decision was made that it wasn't going to be a Wings album, we never actually got the chance to do that kind of massage the tunes as a band album. And I, at that point, it was I saw the writing on the wall, and and I was making plans, making plans to move to New York. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, um, what was the at the atmosphere amongst you, uh, you you wingmen, uh, in 1980 when you didn't have an album coming out, and the future. 
We just stayed busy. Well, I stayed busy. Denny was working on his own stuff. He put a band together and was gigging. And you played on his I album. Was doing, I was doing some session work. I was starting to, to get into writing. I um, did a little bit of commercial composing. I did a um, my first first jingle. Um, in fact, I think maybe the only jingle. That I was convenient wrote. timing. You say jingle and you hear jingles. Yeah, my, my ring was making noise. It's somehow appropriate uh, for this Christmas episode. There you go. Um, the first jingle I, 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 an only jingle I did was, was for a, um, uh, for a chicken, Paxo chicken stuffing, which was, and it was an animated, it was like their, their, their motto was the rooster booster. And they, and I did like a little red rooster kind of groove thing that, um, they had an animation and, and my friend, Tony, Tony Kay, who's a, a director, who was a famous animation director and then went on to direct a movie called American History X. Uh, he was the one who hired me to do it, you know. And um, that was kind of an interesting experience and it kind of like opened the door for me to the notion that once I got to LA and I started getting the opportunity to do some composing, that that was something that I could actually handle, you know. So I I put together a small studio. Um, I always had. I mean, e even with Wings, I had like a little four-track studio, and then it just gradually kind of grew from four to eight to sixteen to twenty-four, and then to Pro Tools, and then you know, I did a lot of session work, and then I produced four albums for Al Stewart. And, well, uh, I'll, I want to touch on that in a second. Actually, I'll say it now. Um, all right. In, in the Christmas generosity spirit and all this, you know, whatever it is, uh, I want to ask you a question because my, my dear friend Richard, my best friend, is a massive fan of Al Stewart. And so I want to ask you, how did you get involved with Al Stewart? Um, that came about because um, the, there was a man named, there's a man named James Jensen who approached me a about um, putting out records. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd already put out a couple of albums. Actually, I put out an album and, and he uh, became something of a fan of it and, and wanted to get involved somehow. And, and he um, co-produced my second and third albums. Um, and he said he wanted to have an, his own record label. And I said, well, you know, if you get a catalog, I'll you know, certainly be, I could be on your label. So he actually, um, uh, ended up distributing a German guitar catalog and, and um, there was kind of a reciprocal thing that happened with um, my record then got released in Germany. So it was kind of, it was a, a reasonable piece of business. But James was also a journalist mm -hmm. and had interviewed Al Stewart and in the process of interviewing him discovered that Peter White was going off to have a solo career and Al was looking for a guitar player. So um, I said, well, you know, I've always been a fan of Al's. I mean, I actually opened for him when I was about 14 in London in a folk club. Really? Um, Back in the 60s? And, yeah, this would have been, well, actually, no, it would have been more than 14. It was would have been, it was like bedsitter images. Okay. so 60. 60. 60 something. Um, so um, James took me over to meet Al, and we hit it off, and then I did a short tour with him in Colorado. And then he came over um, 
and and had um, this song Night Train to Munich and um, we did a demo of it um, here in the studio and um, next thing I knew that you know there was a there was an album to make and they wanted me to produce it so uh, and then you know so the Between the Wars album is actually I'm kind of featured with him <laughs> the three subsequent ones were just our records but Between the Wars was kind of based around the idea of two guitars yeah. and then we we did a, a reasonable amount of touring it's together. credited as Al Stewart and Lawrence Juber yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah that was um, but the other ones um, I were, were done had a different kind of uh, approach to them because they were more Al coming in and with songs that were keyboard songs or whatever and and so my role was not only as a guitar player but also as an arranger and um produce you know and producer um, but between the wars had a kind of a special vibe to it that's one of my favorites one of my favorite albums that i've worked on well there's there's always a staple on this show because we're we're getting close to the end i want to ask you some I, getting I, very near the end well, yeah. getting very near the end you made the beetle pun before I did, and I have egg on my face. Um, I, I call these quickfire questions. So I want to okay. ask you, what is your favorite Beatles song? Whew. I told you not to ask me what my favorite questions are. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it's, I, I can't even answer it. It's just too, there's too many, too many to to really kind of, I, I know in terms of playing, <laughs> one of my favorites I think is Strawberry Fields. Really? While My Guitar Gently Weeps. You know, I love playing Strawberry Fields as a solo guitar arrangement. But it's, it's an impossible question because there's this, you know, it's like which era of Beatles? Yeah. Because you know, She Loves You is so radically different from Why Don't We Do It in the Road. Yeah. Thank you, girl, and then tomorrow never knows. Exactly, yeah. But but within the space of like three, four years, mm -hmm. I mean, the transition, you know, She Loves You was in, was August of 1963. By that time, you know, whenever it was, they started on, um, on Revolver, you know, it's three years. Yeah. You go from She Loves You to Tomorrow Never Knows, and, you know, Dr. Robert and... All of that, yeah. yeah. But impossible question to answer. Yeah. Well, it's also an impossible question to ask because, <laughs> th again, they made a lot of good music. Um, mm -hmm. So you've, you talked a lot about um, the being immersed or the music that really kind of influenced you at a young age, the 66, 67, 68... I want to ask mm -hmm. you, is there any particular album that means a lot to you that you still go back to uh, from that time? Yeah, uh, the the blues, uh, John Mayall Blues Breakers with Clapton. Because mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of that moment in Clapton's career is a very, you know, very fruitful one. Have you treated uh, yourself to a new copy of the album since you wore the first one out? Uh, yeah, well, I have it on... CD. I have it autographed by John Mayall because oh. John, um, my wife Hope, for a period in the late 80s and early 90s, had a comedy rock and roll band called The Housewives, 
with Maggie Mail, who was married to John at the time. And um, so John used to come out and do gigs with us, which would be fun, you know, get him up and play yeah. uh, you know, a little 12-bar jam with him on harmonica. Um, I've got video of that somewhere. Oh, man. Oh, you are making, you have made me sufficiently jealous today. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just want to thank you for the bottom of my heart for coming on the show today and to well. help this merry season because we are totally not recording in November. See, this is what... No, um, you can find... I have two Christmas albums. Mm -hmm. uh, I have Winter Guitar, which is strictly solo guitar, which was done, I think, 97 or 98. 97, I think. And then a few years ago, I did an ensemble one, a trio one called Holly Days and Holly Nights. And both of those are on, um, you know, all the streaming services. Yeah. So whether it's uh, you know Spotify or Apple Music uh, and Apple Music, all of that, yeah, all those yeah. wonderful things. Well, I'm not so sure about the well, wonderful. I, I say it because you can find it's, it's, it easier. It's, yeah, um, it's certainly a lot easier to access yeah. music. The problem is that you know, I mean, even even a CD. I mean, you know, I I would typically sell a CD for twenty dollars American. But based on 1963 prices, an album should actually cost $35. Really? So, oh yeah. How I much mean, did an album cost in, in the 60s? Well, my, I, I bought, um, with the Beatles, cost me 32 shillings and sixpence. Okay. I, I, and if you actually figure that out, it works out you know, in, you know, converting and allowing for the passage of time and inflation it works out about 35 bucks well i i've uh, had that happen before where i've i've been talking with some people about buying records in the uk in the 60s and said oh and two and six or 36 and it's i can't figure out how i th that's an episode for another day how it actually worked because I, I can't i can't get my head around it 240 pennies to the pound um a shilling was 12 pennies. You're blowing And 20 mind. shillings was a pound. And so like 12 and sixpence was 12 shillings and sixpence. Um, and then, but what made it even more complicated was there was something called a guinea, which was 21 shillings. And like electronic equipment, like hi-fi equipment was always priced in guineas. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is, that sounds way yeah. more complicated oh, it, than it, it should be. Overnight, overnight, and they went decimal, and the price of everything doubled. So what used to be, what was one old penny became one new penny, which was 2.4 old pennies. So one's uh, spending money didn't go quite as far. And then, then we had, you know, we, we got ridiculous rates of, of value-added tax, in the 70s, where a set of electric guitar strings had a 25% value-added tax, but a set of acoustic guitar strings had a lower rate because it wasn't electric. Okay. Because anything electronic had a higher rate of VAT. So, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Cause, I mean, but the, there's the, nothing the, about electric the, about the strings. England in the 70s was a crazy, crazy place to live. So, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll bring this to a close, and I'll, I'll ask you, is there anything else that you want to make sure our audience knows like where to find you, what else you've you done. You can find me at lawrencejuba.com. Um, 
currently you can find me on my Facebook artist page on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday um, at 1.30 Pacific time doing mini concerts, what I call Tea Time with LJ. Um, and other than that, you know, I'm not touring at this point. Um, I don't know when I'll be touring again. So doing Facebook Live is at least an opportunity for me to play in front of a virtual audience. And beyond that, um, just, uh, you know, you can find me, find me online and find me in the streaming services. Well, I actually have a Twitch account now, and I've been thinking about doing some workshops on Twitch. That, that would actually uh, be really cool doing stuff on Twitch. Yeah. yeah, um it's I have a friend who does one three concerts a week, one on Facebook, one on YouTube and one on Twitch. And the same audience follows him from one to the next. Well, there you go. Your your tea time audience can follow you over to uh maybe Twitch. We'll see. I mean, Facebook has, you know, such a wide reach. But when it comes to doing something like a workshop which would be more of a hands-on or, you know, clinic-style thing, it's a different kind of audience. Anyway. Well, you've plugged yours. I'll plug mine. Uh, it's always my least favorite part of the show, but uh, let's give it a whirl. Uh, if you're uh, listening to this on YouTube, if you haven't already, please hit that big red uh, subscribe button. And uh, you know what? Hit that bell notification icon right beside it so you get notified every time a new episode of Fans on the Run gets uploaded or a new anything else I post because I post other things too. Um, if you're listening to this streaming, which a lot of you seem to do, uh, please subscribe on whatever platform you have already. Uh, the show is available to stream, if you haven't been able to tell, on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Podbay, iHeartRadio, and probably 3.4 other billion platforms that I have no idea about that Podbean just kind of signs me up for anyway. And uh, wherever you listen to them, uh, please uh, rate us. Uh, please rate us five stars. And if you, you know... We're on social media at uh, Fans on the Run Podcast on uh, both Facebook and Instagram. And we're Fans on the Run Pod on Twitter because we couldn't get the name. It wouldn't fit. And um, you know what? We're also, if you want to give some uh, feedback or criticism or just compliments, because I like compliments, uh, you can reach us at Fans on the Run Podcast at gmail.com. I have a cup of tea. So. I, I would just like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on the show today very welcome all right then and to everyone else out there i hope you've had a, a very happy day hope you've eaten maybe some turkey if you if that's your if that's your bag had some presents and even if you don't celebrate christmas i i, I hope you've had you know a great day with your loved ones and family and you know thank you for listening you can go home now Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillips. This is the Showtown Production.